Hello and welcome to another episode of the Atlas Podcast. My name's Alex. I'm joined as always by Martin. Hello, Martin. How are you doing? Hello, Alex. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Very well. Good. Uh, this week on the podcast, we're going back to space again. I know we discussed it last week, but obviously anyone with half an eye on the news knows, uh, yeah, we've, we as a civilization have gone to Mars again. Uh, and then in our tech spot, we're going to be taking a look at containers, all about the world of Kubernetes and Dockers and things like that. And then finally, we're joined by Ruth Mallers Ray for a fantastic conversation. How's that sound? Oh, sorry. Excellent. No, it's all good. Uh, yeah, so Mars, Perseverance has just landed yesterday. Um, first rover from NASA to land since 2012. Um, very exciting stuff. What are your thoughts? Um, yeah, I, I mean, it was funny last night. I was, I was actually, that's not a news item, but I, I was doing the Jay's virtual pub quiz. Um, good. And during the, uh, <laughs> during the pub quiz, he kind of said, oh, the orbiter's just about to land on Mars or whatever. It's it like, how oh, quick. So trying to, trying to watch both things happen at the same time and that kind of anticipation, especially um i remember the open university done a a, a mission or was, were a part of a mission to mars and then um, they were very disappointed when the, uh, the the lander just kind of plummeted through the very thin martian atmosphere um destroying itself on impact i remember um, that yeah yeah so it's it, that's kind of sticks in your mind when you think of these things and this year is quite incredible so you know 2021 uh, there's three missions, three spaceships from Earth to the Red Planet um, mm -hmm. that are happening. Uh, obviously, I think the US one was the first. We got one happening from China and the United Arab Emirates as well. So, as you said, the space race is hotting up. Um, uh, we talked about the uh, the privatization of it, especially from an American standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it was. Uh, it's always fascinating, isn't it, to see how not just the the space race itself or anything else but the the technologies and the innovations that occur when we do have a bit of a single focus or a single goal a lot can be achieved when there's a goal orientated mentality associated with things because i think it just simplifies the message really um yeah or people know what to try and achieve so yeah with three missions you can imagine all of these different rovers on mars or looking for different things so it'd be fascinating to see what the science comes out of the back end of that as well yeah yeah i think the from what i've read the focus of this one is it's uh yeah obviously as they always do collecting samples and things like this but i think one of the most interesting is this is sort of a preparatory one as well i know it's going to be collecting samples that then in a later mission are going to be collected and returned to Earth, which is something that's never been done before. Mm. Uh, it all, I think, yeah, it's always done, obviously, because returning something is a whole new challenge. So they tend to build these things with sort of mobile laboratories in them to do all of it. But there's certain things you obviously can't do a few mm. light seconds away. And yeah. Yeah, because ultimately you've got to weigh off the cost of moving a laboratory um, to Mars um, uh, or being able to return the sample back and having far more capability with it. Even even like moon rocks are, are valued, aren't they, from the fact that 
there's, there's only so many of those you can get your hands on um, mm. for a payload of yeah marsh and rock would be um, plus and it'd be the first time I guess that, that kind of return mission type of approach with it uh, yeah everything's sort of a one-way ticket so far mm. apart from the moon everywhere else we've been we sort of send it and then it's gone mm. um, yeah but that should be exciting I think the other thing I read as well um, was there's a small drone it's just a test thing right now but it's the first time they're going to test atmospheric flight on another planet which is amazing yeah yeah and that, and, and that's what i mean the, the kind of innovations that come with these things are are quite incredible and they do unlike um trickle down economy um do actually have an impact on the innovation <laughs> they really do yeah because i know it's uh it's often people go oh what a waste of money doing these things but so many of our the things that we have in our house benefit mm. from crazy scientific experiments like this well you it, the challenge is to get to mars especially when you're looking at maybe humans going to mars with the you know radiation and all of this type of thing the material science has got to be uh, developed for it the propulsion systems and they've got to be far more efficient and effective um so yeah just from the materials to the, to, to the types of propulsion systems we're going to need they're all really relevant to how we engineer things and need things in the future for more um uh, resource efficiency uh, all those types of things so yeah there's a huge pull through with these type and that's why you see a lot of um, companies getting involved with it um, and we see this both in Europe and the UK that the space race is becoming more relevant and here because I guess in some respects um, it's been slightly behind with you've got the superpowers in in the Middle East and China who've got the, the kind of money to and in the India itself, um, playing with these types of things, mm. but you start to see the you know, likes of Airbus and like that getting involved in 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 Europe with it. Um, the UK, I think, are just at the point they're really going to start announcing the UK space sector. It's already established, but it hasn't really pressed um, the uh, you know promoting what it's doing in the UK through it. But I think um, from from looking at some of the noises that are happening um, on LinkedIn and some of the things that are happening, you, think of, you know, there was a news in the uh, Guardian the beginning of February about um, the apprenticeship scheme ready to take off for the UK space industry, um, and they're looking to really uh, develop that sector with thirty thousand jobs expected to be created in the next decade. Um, yeah. So, you know, there is that whole thing about the human aspect of this, that we we are curious, we want to get involved with things. And um, if we can get, uh, you know, higher paid, higher skilled jobs, regardless of the kind of country, but the human endeavour, then why not? It gives, mm. a, gives everybody a, a purpose and a meaning to try and do these things. Yeah, I guess, especially here, because we don't, we have the, obviously the European Space Agency, but having it pick up in country the uk space agency sort of stops that because i guess there's a bit of a talent gap but also a bit of a talent bleed that when people move into these areas there's no jobs for them so they're off to nasa or they're off to like you say any of the other space agencies and we're sort of talent is leaving when we could be yeah putting things in space why not mm. i like it a lot 
Maybe we should pivot. Now we'll be a space podcast. We've done two weeks in a row. That's it. <laughs> you can see where our obsession is then. <laughs> it's shining through, for sure. Anyway, next week you might do a book review. So, you know, we're going to change. Yeah, we'll see. See how that comes along. Um, yeah, fantastic stuff. Mars, obviously, we'll be looking at beautiful images from the red planet for the next few months. Um, but for the time being, shall we discuss containers? We can. And not the uh, containers of the physical kind, because if you just Google containers, you get all kinds of things come up with ships and boats and uh, haulage, stuff like that. But containers in an IT sense are um, quite fascinating. And they do kind of the imagery that they use. And once again, when we talk about the types of words to define things in the IT space, they often pull from uh, other sectors. Um, and this mm. time, you know, we're really using the word container here as a way of shipping uh, a, a apps, controlling and shipping apps and the services required for the apps to function. Yeah. Uh, and it's, and yeah, it's a long lineage really of um, being able to take computers and to be able to take those computers and virtualize the computer themselves, really. And how do you make, and the reason we want to virtualize computers is because we want to make the processing power um, as utilized as possible. There's no point in having a computer or a, a CPU sat there not doing anything. Mm. Um, so everything is really around trying to maximize that that kind of uh, that kind of process. So if you think of that as the kind of funnel, the bottleneck is the actual physical CPU, and at the heart of the CPU, all it's really doing is manipulating ones and zeros to be able to come up with some kind of logical um, output from that process. It's yeah. a very simple kind of definition when we think of it in those terms, and everything we process goes through that exact uh, approach. But if you're not really using that, that that CPU power or the storage related to it, um, you're not maximizing the potential of that computer. Um, and IBM worked this out a long time ago when they were looking at mainframe computers back in the 1960s. And realize that actually having just a physical entity of a physical chip and physical storage wasn't good enough to be able to look at being able to load balance or be able to create a level of resilience, um, be able to uh, create a, a additional um, performance from the overall system that's using these chips. So mm. that's when they started to venture into the world of things called virtualization. So virtualization is really going, representing the computer or the processes happening in the computer in a virtual way um, rather than the physical nature of that, that CPU activity. Mm. Um, and so that's really evolved to a point that we uh, we, we ended up um, in the 1990s. As it's, oh, it's like the turn of the century. It, when we think of that turn of the century, it's kind of, oh, it happened, but so much changed at that point, really, and so much yeah. to do with computers. Um, and a real tipping point. Computers, the internet, yeah. mobile technology. Yeah, they, they've all come around that point, and that's, okay, there's no... Um, coincidence there because you know 
the 2000 is an arbitrary day, basically. But it, it just happened to coincide with the fact that they, these technologies have advanced so much. All the chip technology has advanced, all of that kind of thing. So, yeah, to, around the, the, the turn of the, the century, we've started to get this thing called VMware, which at the time, um, I don't know how, when you, when were you first aware of kind of VMware or the virtualization of computers? Probably mid to late 2000s, I think, but only in a very cursory manner. Yeah, it was, uh, I was aware that you could run machines from within other computers, basically, but that's yeah. about as far as my knowledge got. And we were, when I found out that we were working on a major project that we've been working on for two years for, for uh, in, in the manufacturing domain, and we started then going, oh look, you, you know, because we needed lots and lots of computer power, and we would we were having computers talking to computers. And then suddenly you could host, I could host the the web server with the application with the database, but all on separate machines and things like this. And this was like amazing. I can have a my laptop sat there with three three PCs sat there working. <laughs> Yeah, the virtual environment all working together, and then you can take that virtual machine and move it to another computer without really any effort of installing anything or anything. Yeah, and we ended up with this like catalog of virtual machines everywhere with different installations in to do different things. Um, and almost overnight, it changed the way that we worked, uh, which was kind of like I said, kind of mind blowing, really. Um, and then you know, there was some, uh, I would say, gradual iteration changes because um, operating systems changed. And, and mm -hmm. you know, we moved from uh, you know, Linux and um, other operating systems were starting to get more of a foothold in. And I think the uh, Microsoft's uh, dominance of the operating system world was coming um, less and less relevant as a part of that, well, you know. It was to be more diverse, let's put it that way. Um, and so we started to kind of get a split up of that, both the operating systems and how things were hosted happening until um, then uh, containers, mainly through the kind of Linux platform, started to get um, talked about. And these containers were once again a drive for more efficiency. The trouble with the virtual machine was you still needed an operating system inside the virtual machine. You still needed the kernel that the you know, which the operating system interacted with before you could host the applications and the data and things like this. So every VM had an mm -hmm. overhead of the operating system and the kernel and things like that. What containers did was mean that basically that kind of uh, you could have a ship, which was your operating system, of which you could then host a load of containers upon. Um, and those containers would contain your applications and your uh, services required to power that application. And they could almost be independent of the operating system. Right. And that was the big switch, really. It was uh, the fact that with that, that diversification of the operating systems that were available, it became less about um, Windows um, and more about how we can uh, utilize the computer power across any operating system. And that meant those containers are far more agile and smaller. <clears throat> and what that means is they can be requested on demand. So even though we still had a virtual machine, it still took many minutes to boot up a virtual machine. 
So if the computer wanted more capacity, you couldn't just go, right, I'll just start that virtual machine up. It would be like 10 minutes before you could actually start using it. <clears throat> yeah, you have to go through the full root up process for each time you want to use a different VM, essentially. Yes, exactly. And so we've moved from boot up to spin up. <laughs> spin up. Uh, spin I've up. heard that a lot over the last year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when you kind of hear that terminology, you know you're in the world of containers. Uh, mm. uh, and, okay, microservices are an extension now to containers, but really containers are something that can be spin up, span up within seconds. So depending on the requirement, the load on that kind of computer service, then those containers can respond within seconds to the needs and demands of the system. Hmm. And that's just because they're far and more agile, lightweight, don't have the, uh, the the need to bear the weight of the operating system and all that type of thing. And, you know, so like I said, the next extension to that is really the cloud microservices, which are a very similar kind of beast to the um, Kubernetes, uh, the, Docker containers or the Kubernetes management of the containers, um, then, yeah, that's kind of where we're at. So there are all these tools that always come along with it. So we've got Docker as, as a business and Kubernetes, and they kind of overlap. So you can also look, oh, what's, what's Docker do and what's um, Kubernetes do? And they grow up as quite distinct things where Docker was about creating and managing containers and Kubernetes was all about um, almost... Uh, the way that those containers were managed and span up and all of that type of thing and far more um, uh, detailed capabilities. But those boundaries get blurred and blurred over time as businesses develop different type of capabilities um, depending on the customer requirements mm. and other competitors come into the market and stuff like this. So, uh, but the basic principle, yeah, the container is a, a small bit of... Uh, self-contained self-managed application that you can um, run on a container or run on an operating system well i mean from a, a linguistic perspective which is about my only perspective i like containers because they're about as close to the analogy as you get they do contain something the cloud is definitely not a cloud Data lakes definitely aren't lakes, but a container contains things, so I'm happy with that. Yeah, yeah. That's, that, I, there's so much of that goes on when you look at object-oriented programming. And so, for the interview portion of this Atlas podcast, we're joined by Ruth Mallers-Ray, OBE, uh, she is the director of RMR Consultants and just recently took up the position of associate director of Connect the Connected Places Catapult. Thank you so much for joining us, Ruth. Uh, thank you for having me. Fantastic. If you'd like to give us a bit of a, a history, how you found your way here, uh, yeah. that would be great. Oh, you guys sent me an email is how I found my way here. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, I think we're thinking more about your 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 long illustrious history from uh, working as a what's it? You did have um, as a PhD in chemistry. In... Exactly. So you know, I I'll go all the way back. You know, I uh, I was I'm from Yorkshire. I I've lived in Yorkshire. I've lived in London. Did my uh, BSc. I then went to Edinburgh to do my doctorate in uh, Edinburgh. And then I went to Aberdeen and I went into the oil and gas industry. 
um, uh, actually spent time on helicopters going offshore. Um, I have been dumped in an environment tank at points in my life. <clears throat> and, Fantastic. Uh, so, and my career really uh, took off when I went to AMEC and um, I discovered that I have an ability to tell a good story. I have an ability to take somebody's idea from one part of a business and relate it to another part of a business. And so my journey into the world of knowledge transfer, knowledge management, information management, community building began. And I was with AMEC. Um, from AMEC, I moved back down into the southeast. Um, I've had forays into the world of retail. Um, and retail really is detail. I've worked in the professional services environment um, at EY. And uh, just over 10 years ago, I became the director of the Knowledge Transfer Network for Aerospace and Defence. And this was the game changer for my career, if I'm really honest. I, I like the way that you casually move from one industry to another as if it is just, a, is this by chance or luck or is it because you are very open to different ideas and concepts? How, how do you move between all of these different things from chemistry to retail? Is it, can you explain? I think it's the scientist in me. Now, I always sort of say I am a chemist by education, but I think, you know, if you're a scientist or an engineer, you are curious. Um, you, you've just been trained into that, that question of why and how the whole time. And um, rather worryingly, I, I have a sort of take on something as I go into a new venture um, of that looks really interesting and I don't know whether I can do it. And so I then go and do it um, and have to think about my skills. And, you know, it is really fascinating you know retail the timescales are incredibly short you know it is about you know so you take the weather of today it's snowing well if it suddenly flipped and became really warm by the week by the following weekend you can't turn your supply chain around which you know goes directly into the world of digital now then you will lose customers because you know there are stories of supermarkets not turning things around in time when they at easter because suddenly there's this big heat wave coming and you can't get your fizzy drinks your lollipops and your burgers yeah. else because that's what we want right we're british as soon as it gets sunny we put our shorts on get the barbecues out and off we go and um, I, I love that idea of curiosity you know and i think that's always something I, i've always felt like I, and you'd mentioned about offshore i've worked offshore and it wasn't a case of i wanted to work offshore i was just curious somebody said oh do you want to go and look inside a nuclear reactor it's like yeah why not i can have a look see what's it about um, and i felt that i felt that kind of curiosity to understand the world and that also especially is, is about travel as well i think um kind of engineering does also allow you to travel whether that's just in the uk or or, or abroad but um yeah i do like that idea of just being curious about the world and using your job to allow you to explore things. Um, it really is. And, you know, and I, I do feel like, you know, I have worked for some brands as well. You know, when you work for Sainsbury's, you know, I've been in their warehouses. I have a real sort of sense of what it feels like to be in, in a retail environment. And um, but a lot of these businesses have, you know, common challenges. They've, they're really busy. They, they want to be better connected. They want to know. Uh, where to make the difference they want to know what the uh you know priorities are they want knowledge you know in, in the world of retail you want knowledge to flow seamlessly from head office into your stores and back the way 
know, in, in EY, you know, professional consultancy, perhaps they, they need knowledge to survive. It has to flow. And so a lot of these organisations where I've worked and then when I came into KTN, uh, the KTN space, it was all about getting knowledge to flow and connect to a greater purpose. Um, you know, and that's the aerospace and defence KTN was absolutely about the bigger purpose, the curiosity of the bigger idea, you know, mm. a lot there on technology strategies, for instance, for, you know, the, the front runner to what's now become the Aerospace Technology Institute. And it is about curiosity and people like to come together, as we all now really feel in this pandemic. <laughs> what and what do you think? Feeling a sting, yeah. Yeah. What do you what do you see the barriers to that knowledge transfer? Because, you know, obviously we're we're doing a bit of a, this podcast to really share a bit of ideas and concepts and just to, yeah. Because one of the things we felt was um, in manufacturing, there's some really fascinating, interesting people, um, and in some of the sciences we've seen, there's been a lot of um, you know science on TV and on radio and on podcasts, but nothing around engineering or very little about engineering. And we thought there's such such a wealth of things to talk about in the space. Um, yeah, everything from the the smallest bit of data coming from a machine to the to the spinning up of great big gas turbines or something like that. But I still feel that people don't like talk well, engineers don't like talking outside of themselves or to the wider obviously you're you're one of those advocates who do that um, and through the knowledge transfer you've done it but what do you think there are some genuine barriers there to sharing ideas and concepts it's you know um engineers and scientists are often got their heads down with their pencil in the hand working stuff out they're in deep thought you know generically um so there's an element there of just a, a mindset but my experience is actually is if you um, create the right framework, then people will come to the table. So uh, in AMEC, um, you know, we created, so this makes me sound really old because this was state of the art at the time. We created discussion boards for engineers to ask questions of each other globally in AMEC. At the time, AMEC, as was, had 48,000 employees. And suddenly they had a forum in which they could go, I'm stuck, can anyone help? And that forum was uplifting for them. Um, so it was a peer group. It wasn't a hierarchical, you know, performance reporting type thing. It was a subject matter group. So I think it's about the context. You know, the work that I've been involved in, whether it's in the drama project, which I think we'll talk about in a minute, but drama or space technology strategies or the aerospace technology strategies um, that I did in the, you know, previously, there was a reason to come together. And that reason was, you know, we want to work with government. We wanted to be able to articulate to government why a strategic long-term investment was required. We wanted to be able to say, this is where we're going and this is how we're going to get there. And so you were giving people a, a framework and a, a reason to come together. And, you know, I am absolutely, my glass flows over the top with optimism and there are a lot of people who would have a different perspective on some of this to me. Um, but I really believe that a lot of businesses want to come together to talk, to be able to share insights if the insight is right um, and if the reason for that is right. Um, you know, you can't just put the chief exec of Network Rail and the chief exec of 
Rolls-Royce, the chief exec of you know, GSK and say, look, do some knowledge transfer and you know, you've got stuff to understand from each other's businesses. It just doesn't work. It's just like there's no context. Uh, yeah. Context is right. yeah, and that's 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 really interesting. I also pick up on your point about you know I felt like um, I'd say over the last four or five years we've kind of hit a golden age in a way. It feels like when I finished my apprenticeship because in the nuclear industry, then it just felt like um, manufacturing itself was a bit of in the doldrums. In, in, from my point of view, yeah, it was happening, but there was no real innovation um, demand for it. Um, but in the last five, longer than that, there's been a, there has been this um, renaissance of innovation that's happening in uh, in manufacturing, um, and yeah, things like the knowledge um, uh, transfer network, we're sharing those ideas and concepts. Yeah, uh, and I think, it's, I think it's also though I think it's partly to do with you know I was talking to somebody else about this is you know, you're now in a role where you're able to affect that. You know, you know, there's a there's a sort of swathe of people who have experienced um, the uh, uh, learning about all these technologies and we're now in positions of influence. And so we're able to change the conversation so that the demographic in the manufacturing industry is changing. And so consequently, people are slightly more open again to change. They are, and also, you know, I think the last year is going to be really transformative. You know, all these businesses who have, you know, three years ago would say, no, no work from home policy. No, we're not using virtual technologies to work from home. No, it's not secure. It's not this. It's not that. And now, overnight, we've all been forced into a, I mean, it's like the world's biggest accidental training and development program isn't it that's just happened you know we've all become experts on zoom teams podcasting because we've all been forced the crisis of the pandemic has forced us and just opens that that weird discomfort with the discomfort has opened businesses up to oh if i could do it if i can work this way in in digital environment with my meetings what could I do differently somewhere else? It's no. back, yeah. back to the mother of invention is um, necessity or whatever it is. It's kind of, yeah, we've been put in this position and therefore we invent or something like that. Um, yeah. Alex, you, you weren't in our industry, were you, until, uh, well, you joined us at the beginning of the um, pandemic, wasn't it? Which, you know, this whole manufacturing world new for you. Uh, yes, I joined at the start of the lockdown. This is... I have worked remotely before, but this is my first fully remote job. And I think what is remarkable, as you mentioned, Ruth, is it seems like all of the blockers before the pandemic were very cultural because from what I've seen, it's been such an easy switch or seamless switch to digital working. Um, It really was just people not wanting to change to new um, philosophies that seem very possible. Yeah, I, th- I think it's that, and it is cultural. And you know, when you join an organisation, you know, you, you you join the organisation, you're a graduate, and you're running around, every bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and you look at the, the the top of the tree, and you go, "What does the top of the tree look like?" And it looks like an office on the fifth floor of a five-floor building behind a sort of you know secure pass door, and that's what it looks like. And so you're ingrained into this this dynamic of 
to to what success looks like, me sitting behind a desk on the fifth floor behind a security pass door. Mm. And, you know, what what the pandemic has done is it's put us all on a flat screen. It's put us all into 2D, you know, it's put us all onto the same level playing field. I think it's brought about an equity of discussion, you know, you you know, some of the meetings I've held where, you know, for the drama project on, on Zoom, you know, the dialogue is transactional. So, yes, we've lost a lot of creativity and um, sparking of ideas of how things flow in a workshop, for instance. But it's created a level of equity on, um, on, on online. Now, what's going to be fascinating is the shift as to when one day we are out of this pandemic, <laughs> you know. Mm. How will that translate? And that is where company policies are being drafted for hybrid working. Company systems are being tested for hybrid working. But you know what? The thing that will enable it to work will be the leadership. If the leadership of organisations all just go trotting back to their offices and running their exec management team meetings for their offices, running their you know performance reporting meetings from their offices, then everyone will trot back to their offices. It's the literally following the hybrid policy to pull um, that will yeah. into a hybrid way of working. And I, I, th- I think you've touched on that a couple of times. I really like that point. You said that the, the demographics changing and different leadership are coming into different positions. Um, and yeah, that 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 concept is, is is a very powerful one, and not one I've necessarily thought of before. Um, and yeah, touching on the drama project is. Um, well, this is where we first met you. You were asked to, I guess, to help set up the um, uh, industrial steering group as a part of that. I, I don't know exactly how you got involved with it, but um, um, there was a real challenge at the beginning of that project to change both how we went about delivering um, digital solutions into a new way of manufacturing, which is the additive manufacturing, but also the methodologies, the mindset really were challenged in those first six months of that project just to shake people up and saying, we're not going to do things the same way as we've done them previously. We're not going to deliver the same technologies. We are going to try and deliver things in a completely different way to what we've done before. And that took some time than us adapting to um, uh, working from home. Yeah, and I think, so. you know, the drama project, you know, this amazing £14.5 million programme to digitally reconfigure additive manufacturing in aerospace, as its acronym is DRAMA, because it's easier to say, you know, has has done what it said it was do, do. It's built national facilities, a sort of capability for supply chain companies to come and try before you buy, and a knowledge hub of content of baking in digital processes from the get-go. But the steering group, the steering group was instrumental because the MTC and the National Centre for Additive Manufacturing could have created those facilities. And supply chain companies could, could then have rocked up and used them and then gone off to GKN or Airbus or Boeing or Rolls-Royce and said, oh, I've made you something. And it wouldn't have been in the right context. They wouldn't have been thinking about, you know, the regulatory framework, the certifications, the safety standards, all these nuances that are so important in the aerospace industry. And so the steering group was really instrumental. But you're right, Martin, because they were really uncomfortable. The, the steering group were uncomfortable with 
additive manufacturing. They were uncomfortable with digital twins. They were, I think it was the most frequently asked question was about that digital twin. I think we'd need to revisit it. Can we revisit it all the time? And, but they were also in a place where in that room, you had people who didn't know each other. That's one thing. But you also had people in that room who were in competition with each other. And, you know, the last meeting that we had a couple of weeks ago, it was just amazing for these additive manufacturing specialists in the primes and the tier ones to be talking about, I have made a relationship with somebody who is my competitor that is now a professional relationship that I will be relying on as I move forward. That they've understood, again, it comes back to the point earlier, we've created an environment in which they can share knowledge We've built the framework, we built a context where it was safe to talk about what was needed in additive manufacturing for the industry. Um, and it was just, it was a, a joy to be involved, uh, you know, a really brilliant group of people to work with. It's fantastic. And that's really great to hear. And that's kind of what we're talking about as well, the innovation and collaboration. And it comes back to humans talking to other humans and not seeing people as competitors in that way. You can still wear your company badge. That's fine. Because, um, you know, ultimately, they're the ones who pay our wages. But I have the kind of approach. Sometimes I like to just put our badges down a bit. Let's see what problems we want to solve together. Um, and then, you know, it doesn't matter so much about the, the label or the badge you wear if we work together to achieve what we're trying to achieve. Um, and uh, I think that, that we can actually achieve more in that way, ultimately. Um, and uh, the world's small enough, especially in the aerospace industry, for the, for people to uh, businesses to thrive and people to thrive without getting too hung up on competition. Yeah, um, exactly. Exactly. It was fantastic. And, and, and that's what we've done. You know, we've created that environment and that facility is now there, is available for people to go and work to either say, I, I have no idea what additive is. Can you help me? Or I've started, but I need to accelerate. You know, it's a ready-made facility um, of people, being of organisations like yourself being able to support those companies. It's fantastic. So we, we are going to have to uh, cut this short. I could talk for ages about this, but... Um, uh, what's next for you Ruth? what's what's on the what's what either happening now or on the horizon so there's a couple of things it's very exciting i've just been made um associate director of the connected places catapult um so this is an advisory role um they have a network of um associates who help them in various areas the connected places catapult is all about you know the sort of it's not really about the building or the or the, or the house or the car or the aircraft it's about the interfaces and the interactions of those things the system of them so they set up a directorate for um, um, air mobility last year so i'm going to be working with them helping them uh, mobilize that directorate it's all about the digital infrastructure between land and air and uh, digital um, uh, air traffic management systems how we can help accelerate the commercialization the mass scale up of drones that sort of thing um, doing some really super work on a program to help break down some barriers on sustainable aviation. We need to get to net zero flight by 2050. So that's uh, I'm involved in some work there and um, doing some work with the space industry. So um, 
looking at big ideas for space, a really big, buoyant industry nationally and globally. Um, and the UK has got a lot of stuff. It's got a lot of capability and it's very like, likely that we will see launch capability actually happen, not just sit there getting talked about, but we will actually start doing some small satellite launches from the UK, definitely within the next years. So, you know, as always, um, up, up and away and um, exciting stuff um, in my portfolio. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Ruth. I'm sure we'd love to have you back for a conversation soon. Yeah, it's been great time, guys. Um, and uh, I wish you well in your transformation of the world going toward digital technologies. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, so that's it for another episode of the Atlas Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Uh, as always, I have a quote. This time it's space themed, but I wanted to use the quote opportunity uh, to correct a misconception. Uh, one of the most famous quotes of all time is uh, Neil Armstrong, when he landed on the moon, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, oft misquoted. It's actually the proper quote is one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. So there you go. It's a quote and a little lesson as well. So many misquotes out there, isn't there? there but like, actually, it's better in its um, original form, isn't it? Yeah, because it makes uh, it's the distinction between one person and all people, yeah. and just man and mankind is sort of the same. But yeah, there we go. Um, and also, before we sign off, uh, the interview mm -hmm. this week um, with Ruth was touching on some of that space stuff at the end, but it was also very fascinating. I could have spoke for ages about uh, the various things. So I um, um, really appreciate uh, all our guests who appear on the uh, podcast. But, um, yeah, it's uh, fascinating to hear from all these different people. Absolutely. And we'll pop a few links in the, the episode description to some of what Ruth was talking about and some other stuff she'd like people to pay attention to as well. All right. Thanks, Martin. I'll see you next week. Yeah. See you next week. Cheers, Alex. Cheers. If you have any thoughts on the Atlas podcast, please don't forget to leave us a review. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at podcast at weareatlas.com. Follow us on Twitter at ATS underscore Atlas, and you can like our LinkedIn page found in the episode description. If you want to know more about Atlas products, services, and projects, head over to our website, weareatlas.com, to find out 